This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. The cry used to go out in our culture, be a man. Come on, stand up, be a man. Well, the cry today is, we don't really need men. In fact, women are saying, many women have been saying, we don't need a man. Get out of our way. We're against patriarchy. Down with patriarchy, said a famous actress. Well, how are men supposed to handle this if we're made in the image of God? What in the world does that mean for a man to be made in the image of God when he is demeaned and virtually demolished in every way in our culture today? Well, one pastor, a pastor of a Presbyterian church, made this statement. He said, in my 24 years as a pastor, two tragic words have come to summarize the affliction of many men lonely and bored. He said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Once they've settled into the routines and presumed have-tos of life, family, career, maybe church, it's common for men to replace adventure and dreams with other things that numb and distract, like television, internet surfing, pornography, sports, workaholism, voyeurism, excessive eating, drinking, and affair. All these kinds of things. Well, our guest today is chasing down these problems with his book, The Five Masculine Instincts. His name actually is Chase, and he does a great job not only describing the sad state of affairs for many men, but also paving a path forward for men who desire a better, more excellent way. Whether you're a man or, ladies, a man you care about, Maybe today's program is for you. And so I welcome you aboard. I'm Chuck Chris Myers. Conversation is always with ever increasing conversation, with ever increasing conviction, talk that transforms. Well, as I said, these days masculinity seems to have very little to do with who a man really is or actually is. It's about politics and culture. The obvious masculine tropes, beer, sports, women, guns, cars, whatever, hunting, and so on. There are old cautions of money, sex, and power, and there are new cries of toxicity, aggression, stoicism, and competition. But our guest today says the real question of masculinity lies much deeper. So we're going to allow Chase to chase it down and dig deeper in order to help us understand what real masculinity is from God's viewpoint. Chase, it's good to have you on the program. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm honored. Uh, an important topic, obviously one I care a lot about, but probably a lot of listeners as well. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, join the discussion with you today. Well, your last name gives me a challenge. So <laughs> would you do me a favor and pronounce it officially? I would be happy to. It's Replogal. Uh, although Replogal. I would say anything with an R is close enough. I won't be offended. Replogal. Now that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have pronounced it that way, so I'm sure glad I asked you. You know, you say that one of the things that uh, marks a man is humility. So when you realize you can't actually pronounce a man's name, it's it's quite humbling here on the uh, uh, live radio to ask somebody to actually do that. 
That is, Iowa Chase is just fine, and I've heard all the alternatives of Rep Logal, so uh, anything close is close enough for me. Now, you, uh, you're obviously a man, uh, and you have a family, don't you? I do. Married and have two kids. And their ages? Uh, I have a son who is eight and a daughter who is five. All right. So you're going you're gonna to be dealing with masculinity and femininity, uh, all of which are under challenge today. Yeah, we have a full home, two boys, two girls. Uh, you know, my wife and I counted. So, yeah, we, we see the full spectrum. And so what is it that prompted you, Chase, to, as a pastor, write this book called The Five Masculine Instincts? Well, first and foremost, I'm a pastor. And that means, you know, I am a man myself, but I also have men in my congregation. And I've experienced, like so many men over the last half decade, uh, the controversy around this conversation. Right. I know putting the word masculinity on a book cover invites controversy, which is uh, an interesting comment in and of itself. That right. To have the conversation is immediately the way to the controversy. And I saw the way that for a lot of men, they were becoming tired and worn out of that controversy. And the consequences of it was a lot of men were getting stuck. Uh, they were either caught in the debate, digging the existing trenches deeper, or because it was so controversial, they were tending to just check off on the idea of what it means to be a man. We're having less of that conversation, and men are just finding it more difficult to, to move forward. The word I use in the book is malaise, which is this idea of a sort of unsettled uneasiness, not quite sure how to fix it, not quite sure how to move forward. I think it represents what a lot of men today are experiencing. All right. Well, that, uh, that connects with uh, something else that I've experienced about four years ago. I wrote a book called... Hearts of the Fathers. Hearts of the Fathers, leaving a legacy that lasts. And what I discovered is that two-thirds of all of those books that have been sold were purchased by women. The men didn't seem to have much interest. Only the women. Why do you think that is? You know, you alluded to it in your introduction, I think, well, too, is that there's there's been a cultural narrative for some time that uh, that the, the future is, is female, that men are a part of the problem, not a part of the solution, where men have tried to weigh into this conversation. It's really produced a lot of frustration and, and, and controversy. And so a lot of men are checking out. Um, this idea of toxic masculinity says that men are too aggressive, too competitive, and certainly there is a, a form of masculinity that can be lean into violence. But there's an Irish proverb that says, for every mile of road, there's two mile of ditch. And I think what we've done is an attempt to not go into one ditch. We've, uh -huh. we've overcorrected into the other ditch. And that other ditch is disengagement, um, uh, apathy. A lot of men have just checked out. And, and the statistics tell us it's true. There are less men are dropping out of education, the workforce, clearly the the epidemic of fatherlessness and home the disengagement mm -hmm. of fathers and the is church at the, at the center as yeah is at the center of so many of our social challenges as well in the church the statistics tell us that so it's not surprising to me that men are just asking less interested less reading less okay. uh culturally we've kind of told them they're not a part of the future and the solution and they seem to be responding by by accepting it and dis disengaging and yet and yet what i'm hearing from women and uh, I've been hearing this. I've been on the air now for almost 27 years uh, after leaving the practice of law at the height of my career, uh, Chase. And uh, what I've heard from women across the country, Christian women, is 
their number one concern is not about the economy. It's not about Vladimir Putin. It's not even about education per se. It's about why can't or won't my husband be the spiritual leader of our home? What say you, Mr. Pastor? Yeah, well, you know, it's always struck me that um, if this cultural narrative is true, that men are somehow the source of the problem, then why is it that a home without a father is often associated with some of the, the most significant societal challenges? So we know there are all sorts of problems that are at a higher risk if there isn't an actively engaged father. And that's not just, you know, fathers who have left the home. That's also the unique challenges of a father who may be physically present, yeah. but is spiritually or emotionally disengaged. All right, from we'll pick up on that after the broadcast, after the break, that is. We'll be right back with Chase Repligal. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chrismeyer. It's no secret. Today's men face a dilemma. Our culture tells them that their instincts are either toxic or salvific or perhaps just erotic. Men are left with only two options, deconstruct and forfeit their masculine identity or embrace it with wild abandon. In other words, uncontrolled. They're left to decide between ignoring their instincts or just indulging them. And neither approach, says our guest today, actually helps them understand their own masculine experiences, nor even how these experiences can lead them to become better men of God. So, he says, by examining five men in the Bible, we can get some insight as to both the good, the bad, and the ugly about men's instincts and how to deal with them so as not to deny God-given masculinity. Do you think I have that right, Chase? Did I express that well? Yeah, I think it is. Okay, yeah, good. We've got to have a deeper conversation about instincts before there we make you progress. Go. You know, uh, the word instincts uh, actually brings up a lot of uh, uncontrolled negative thoughts, uh, sexual promiscuity, uh just unfettered, uh, giving yourself to this, that, or the other without any kind of self-control. You're just following your instincts. So how can instincts be a good thing? Well, you know, C.S. Lewis described instincts as behavior as if from knowledge. So in other words, our instincts are things that seem logical to us, obvious to us. It feels as if we've decided to act upon them when usually those instincts are things we've not actually challenged or considered or determined. They've just been present and we've acted. So the way I describe the instincts in, in the book is that they're, um, they're not necessarily sinful, but these are the kind of narratives or storylines that, if blindly indulged and unchecked, tend to lead us into sin or into destructive experiences when they master us instead of us being master or in control of them. Isn't that often the situation? It's not either or. 
uh, it's either both and or it's a, a control. Uh, the Bible tells us that one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Uh, a, a child's song 30, 40 years ago said self-control is just controlling myself, so I think that I'll control myself. Uh, self-control is a very big deal, and it's not looked upon, uh, not smiled upon with great favor today. Yeah, it's not. We live in an era where we we are instructed by culture to indulge in whatever we feel, that whatever we feel is the most authentic and true thing, mm-hmm. and that we need to break away from any authority or structure that would question our individuality, our expression of that individuality. And what, what we've done is we've made it really hard to ever become better because we're left to just endlessly indulge in whatever our first instinct is. And I think a lot of men intuitively know this. They they're able to imagine a better form of themselves, a self that does have more control, a self that is more virtuous and has character. But we've taken from them the path to be able to pursue that. All we've given them is themselves to indulge. And I think they realize it doesn't lead to the promise of better life, a better sense of identity, the ability to bear responsibility in a greater way. It usually leaves them shrunken and atrophied. You know, it leads me to, to remember back in the 1970s where a very well-known, famous song came out from a Christian uh, uh, lady. And it went like this. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? How can it be wrong when it feels so right? And this lordship of feelings ever since the 1970s uh, basically has kind of overrun not only the culture but the church so that faith now has taken short uh, shrift to uh, to feelings, and feelings have become the Lord, so that uh, the culture has become basically a replacement for Christ himself. Well, and that is the kind of irony of the conversation, particularly with men, is on one hand, we've told men that uh, your instincts uh, you know, whatever you feel, what, whoever you are internally, you should indulge that. Live that out. That's your truth. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, we've said, unless those things you're feeling are traditional forms of masculinity, and then they're actually destructive and harmful. And and we sort of put men in a position where it's hard to sense what the way forward is. I think that's what's leading to so much of this disengagement is men throw their hands up and say, well, forget it. Like, if there's not a way to, to get better and you're telling me who I am is, is part of the problem, then I will live that quiet life of desperation, indulging in sort of my own private world, the things mm-hmm. I can control. Reminds me of another song out of the 70s, uh, I Gotta Be Me. I Gotta Be Me. What more can I be but what I am? <laughs> that goes along with the me, me, me generation. And uh, it seems that everything in our culture is mitigating against godly men. Yes, C.S. Lewis saw this in his Abolition of Man. He referred to this as the, the chestless man, the man without a chest. Wow, can imagine okay, we got we to dig into that one. The chestless yeah. man. So he said that we're made up of three components, a head, which helps us perceive ideals, possibilities, and a stomach, which basically represents our appetites. By Mm -hmm. one, we're sort of like the angels, the ideal, and by the other, like animals, Mm -hmm. hunger. And he says what, what a man has to cultivate is this muscle of the chest by which he mediates between these two, being both, you know, neither fully defined nor just an animal, but a, a, a created human, that we have this chest. And what Lewis feared was that the education of his time, which I think we've only seen furthered, was was robbing 
children as they were educated a sense of right and wrong, natural law, and was instead telling them that truth was basically internally discovered. And so by doing was robbing them of this education into what was good, what was better, how to, to develop character, a chest, as he uses it. And I think you see that played out with a lot of men today, too. This, this, the famous line from Abolition of Man in that section was, we, we, uh, laugh, uh, we laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. And I think that's this kind of experience of men. We, we imagine no such thing as right or wrong, of moral law, virtue of character. And then we're shocked when we find men living without character, living without virtue. Well, if, you, uh, if you're lacking character, you're also going to lack courage. And uh, as a famous uh, pundit once said, courage lost, all lost. How is it that men have lacked courage today? in large measure. Yeah, it comes back to this idea of, of engaging. Um, we need men to engage the complexity of homes, of relationships, within communities, within the church. And that may not be at the kind of battlefield courage that you imagine men need, although certainly that is needed for society as well. But that ability to set aside my own comfort, my own way, and even though I may not fully understand the answer, I may not fully understand how things will get better, this willingness to bear that responsibility, to, to live into that complexity and to search for a better way is a kind of courage that's desperately needed right now, particularly amongst men who seem to be disengaging those responsibilities. So the pursuit of rights actually mitigates against responsibility. Yeah, I think, uh, I think this ability to cultivate character and to grow and become, remember this image of men can a vision, an ideal of who they wish they could be, but they've lost this ancient wisdom by which they developed a chest to rule over their stomachs, their appetites, that we know we're not capable of bearing the kind of responsibility we wish we could. We know we don't have the kind of courage we wish we could, and we've robbed from men that path by which they developed that character that can lead to things like the ability to bear greater responsibility and be courageous. The world is experiencing an in-your-face confrontation with two dramatically different manifestations of men. On the one, we have Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin uh, will portray himself with the bare chest on a horseback or uh, doing all kinds of uh, uh, courageous things, things that we think are masculine. He's uh, under 5'8". He knows that he is a short man, but he has a kind of determination, a kind of courage that seems to be indefatigable. On the other hand, we have a man, President of the United States, who's over six feet tall, and for many looking on around the world, they think he's pusillanimous, that he has no courage whatsoever, that he is nothing but a wimp. Uh, it's a it's a picture of the challenges of masculinity, I think, that's being played out on the world stage. And we don't have to get into politics to discuss it. What do you think? Yeah, I think this, our culture has primarily been instructing us that it is these external realities that we should be looking at, that we define masculinity by. What I think the Bible helps us recognize from the minute in it is that there is a kind of strength that is cultivated through character, that often is not as visibly manifested until moments of its real testing. But we're not um, seeing that character borne out in either one of these men. 
And I think that's exactly right. We see a kind of external display of masculinity, as or I call it, mm-hmm. yeah, or or this kind of deconstructing of it and abandoning of it. And it's a real opportunity for for I believe the church to speak to a kind of strength, a kind of courage that comes through character. That I think you're right is is, is absent right now. Politically, it's absent in visuals. It's absent in the cultural attention. But it shouldn't be absent in the way the church is raising boys, producing men. All right. If we go back to the Old Testament, we find that in the days of the judges, uh, there was a sense of uh, understanding among the people. But uh, then, uh, as the judges waned, the Bible says every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Isn't that where we are today, even in yeah, among professing Christians? Yeah, that's one of my favorite passages uh, from the book of Judges, and it becomes so thematic even in the lives of men like Samson, who I write about, who's also characterized by, you know, his story kicks off with seeing a girl in Timnah, a Philistine, who mm-hmm. was right in his own eyes. It plays out in the real-life decisions that Samson right. is making. Um, and I do think it, it is true of our own day as well, that um, that we, we, as we were discussing before, we, we look for truth, we look for value, we look for meaning internally instead of looking externally, humbling ourselves and trying to find, uh, find it in what has been given to us. Aristotle has a way of talking about virtue and character formation that always struck me as radically different than the world around us. He says that uh, the goal of education is to li- make the pupil like and dislike what he ought to. Well, that sounds so counterintuitive to us. What do you mean? Like the whole point of education is to discover what I like. But Aristotle said that we're supposed to be training and helping individuals acquire tastes for what is actually good, for what is right. And I think that's a critically important task. Of course, there has to be a standard to define that. Friends, we're talking with Chase Replegal. Did I get that right? You got it. That works. Oh, yep. well, sort of. <laughs> His book is called The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. And uh, I want to make the book available to you. Uh, we do everything that we can on this program to disciple, to encourage, to strengthen. Yes, we talk about the issues of our time, but masculinity uh, is a huge issue, and it's being defiled and redefined. Uh, redefined contrary to God's word, word, will, and ways, and according to a godless culture. So we want to strengthen men, and ladies want their men to be strengthened. So here is the book, The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. It's yours on our website today for $14. It's on our website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. If you're writing a check, at $5 for postage and handling. And we're going to get this uh, life-changing, encouraging book in your hands. Now, before the break, very quickly, Chase, give us a rundown, just a quick rundown, of the five masculine instincts, so that when we get back, we can indulge in those freely. Yeah, I'm grateful for it. We'll uh, talk through Shakespeare. They come from stages of a man, and they are uh, sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy, the five masculine instincts. Wow, sarcasm. Woo! Wow. 
you're getting right to the uh, chase there, aren't you? Everyone's favorite one to talk about, for sure. <laughs> right to the chase. All right, sarcasm. You know, it's interesting. My wife and I have been married for almost 56 years now. But uh, the first seven years of our marriage increasingly turned to a conversational style called sarcasm. And uh, it was not good. It was not pretty. (laughs) Here we were Christians. Uh, We were going to church two or three times a week. And true blue in that relationship. But sarcasm became the earmark of our conversation. It was very destructive. So when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about that because I, after seven years of marriage, I repudiated sarcasm as a conversational style like the plague. We'll be right back, friends. Stay tuned. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a for pastors only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website. SaveUs.org. That's SaveUs.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at SaveUs.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, Prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. Could your sarcasm, as funny as it may seem at the moment, be holding you back from a divine lesson, an understanding of God's viewpoint, an opportunity to grow into something more in line with God's character? Hmm. Interesting question. It probes to the deepest recesses of our minds and hearts because our guest today, Chase Repligal, in his book, The Five Masculine Instincts, says number one is sarcasm, and I'm wondering why that is number one. What's the deal, Chase? Well, I take these five instincts from Shakespeare's Stages of a Man. They're from the famous monologue, All the World is a Stage, and each of us, men and women, merely players on it. He goes on to describe these stages. By the way, is that how you feel? Do you feel like you're a man on a stage? I mean, other than when you're a pastor. (laughs) Well, I do get on some (laughs) stages for that. But, uh, you know, the reason I use instincts from that is Shakespeare, one of the great psychological writers. He's trying to unpack human nature. Uh Um, He depicts these stages or parts that we just naturally play, which to me speaks of this instinct language, this behavior as if from knowledge language. But he describes the first of those stages as the reluctant schoolboy dragging himself to school, where I get this idea of sarcasm. And I connect it to Cain's story. Um, Every commentator and writer, pastor who's preached on the passage, the big question of Cain's story is, why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and reject Cain? Yeah, and also, Uh, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, well, so... God, Cain has an opportunity to ask God that question. God comes down and initiates a conversation with Cain and says to him, uh, don't you know that sin is crouching at your door? Its desire is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Well, what does Cain do? 
He doesn't even respond. He rises up and kills his brother. God comes back and says, where's your brother Abel? And just as you quoted, he says, am I my brother's keeper? You hear the sarcasm in it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cain's sarcasm is actually a contempt, and we see it. He imagines it clever. He must have imagined that it was a way of concealing what he was really thinking or feeling from mm-hmm. God. But we see through it for what it was, as did God, that Cain is really immature. He's unwilling to take the divine lesson from God. He's unwilling to learn the things of God. And he would rather bite back with contempt covered by sarcasm. So there's a kind of instinct that refuses to take anything seriously, that jokes or laughs off anything that might question us. It feels like anybody who might point to something God included in our life is somehow unjustly and unfairly judging us. And because of it, it keeps us from being able to mature. It keeps us from being able to recognize the lesson God is offering us that leads to something better. So we're not speaking clearly. Uh, We're attempting to deflect the real motivation of what we're saying Uh, Jesus made an interesting statement, uh, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Uh, Jesus put high emphasis on our words. Uh, We put high emphasis on the Word of God, uh, but we don't put much high emphasis on our own words. One of the characteristics, I think, of the so-called talk show news enterprise today is that it has devolved increasingly into a kind of sarcasm that has become even more vitriolic, uh, bitter, uh, and then you have not only those that are on the air, but those that are trying to be their wannabe pundits in response to blogs and so on, that are engaging in some of the most uh, irreverent and uh, horrific, even blasphemous kinds of sarcasm, that are defiling the conversation and the culture. I'll tell you, uh, Chase, we used to have uh, on our website a an area where people could respond to our programs. We had to get rid of it after a couple of years. Why? Because Christians were responding in such ungodly, unchristian ways that it was not beneficial at all. It was actually tearing down the very spirit that we were trying to cultivate. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. It sounds like this cultural moment. And, you know, for each of these instincts in the book, I try to pair them with an intentional practice, a faith practice that can check that instinct from it becoming overindulged. There's certainly nothing wrong with the sarcastic joke. But when that sarcasm becomes habitual in your life and it becomes the way you see and think about everything overindulged, it can be really destructive. And the intentional practice I set alongside uh, sarcasm is humility which I want to define in a unique way. I want you to think of humility as intentional self-suspicion, that I'm suspicious of my first thought, my first feeling, my first reaction. Um, That's the very thing that Cain couldn't bring himself to do. The moment God questions him, what is his impulse to react, to lash out, to bite back contemptuously? What Cain needed was enough humility, enough self-suspicion to in that moment say, could I be wrong? Could what I feel be wrong? Could Mm. God be offering me an opportunity to grow in some way? And that's the very thing you see people struggling with so much right now. So the sarcasm was a defense mechanism. Yeah, it is. It was a way of covering up his contempt and lashing out at God. And that wasn't overtly rebellion. But for the reader, we see pretty clearly it was pure rebellion. All right. Now let's take that further in application. 
as far as I can see, in doing what we've been doing here for 27 years now, uh, what I have discovered is that uh, the spirit of rebellion is so great among Christians, even among pastors, that the word obey has become the most hated word in the church. I have had many pastors and parachurch leaders on this program over the past eight years who have, to a person, agreed with that assessment, that obey has become the most hated word in the church. Now, if that be true, we as Christians are not humbling ourselves. Because to ultimately humble yourself, as you defined it, with regard to God and his word, is we have to realize that our thought our idea isn't necessarily the right one, and we better find out what God thinks about that issue. His word prevails regardless of my thought. Yeah, it struck me in the Cain story that God comes down and initiates a conversation with Cain. Whatever Cain is confused about or feels frustrated about, that his sacrifice wasn't accepted, all he has to do is ask God why. That question, we've wondered about that passage for so long. But he can't bring himself to do it. He does not respect the authority of God in his life, nor is he interested in the answer that God has for him. All right, you mentioned um, the class, the, the key word, authority. That's what it's really about. The yes. bottom line is we have an authority crisis, starting with men. And when men are not operating under authority, agreeing with God's viewpoint, then they cannot lead their their spouses their children, even their congregations. Yes, and that is for Cain. The consequences of his inability to receive that authority is that he is left to wander the land of Nod, as it's put. In Hebrew, it's just the place of wandering. Mm -hmm. So in other words, his life ends up aimless and adrift, without purpose or meaning or trajectory. And that is always the consequence of a life that's unwilling to, to accept authority, that's unwilling to learn the divine lesson, that's unwilling to check itself, to humble itself, and receive something better, is that we end up adrift, we end up aimless, we end up without something at which to aim our life that is valuable and meaningful. Isn't that exactly what God defined in uh, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as the state of Israel? the man Israel, so to speak, and his uh, progeny. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they refused to humble themselves before God and agree with his viewpoint. Yeah, and it's no, it's no coincidence that Israel is often referred to as a child, that, that God is longing to discipline and raise that child, uh, and that God promises to all of us that he will be a, like a father who disciplines. Mm -hmm. But so often discipline is hard. Um, I write in the book under this point about this divine lesson. Anybody who's, who's set under a coach or a teacher knows that sometimes that instructor will intentionally inflict pain to force us to grow. The drill sergeant is in no way your friend, but he may be the very one who saves your life when that lesson is needed down the road. And at times, God points to things in our life and challenges us and disciplines us in ways that we bristle against and we prefer, that feels like judgment to us, but it may very be that he's maturing us and offering us something better by the lesson. And it's only our willingness to receive it that opens that door 
to real character, to real the ability to bear greater responsibility for life to take on a deeper and a better purpose and meaning. Well, I'll tell you, our world uh, and and God's people need men who can rise to the challenge in our time. And it's not a matter of lifting yourself by your own bootstraps, but it's a matter of humbling ourselves before God. As James, the brother of Jesus, said, humble yourselves uh, before God that he may uh, raise you up in due season. In the meantime, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. All right, so why in the world did you pick Samson as one of these five characters? Yeah, so I use Samson to talk about adventure. There is a cultural narrative right now. You've got grandchildren, I know, so it's everything Disney is making. That to know who you are, you have to leave behind tradition and family and place and set out on an adventure to discover your true identity. Mm. Uh, in so many ways, that is Samson's story, constantly leaving tradition and family and religion in pursuit of all things Philistine, particularly women and adventure and quests. And across Samson's life, we discover that uh, it's not just Delilah that betrays him. It's this quest for adventure. It's this pursuit of all things Philistine. He ultimately betrays himself with this constant need for adventure. And he doesn't seem enlightened. He doesn't seem bigger for it. The Why is he, he lifted up, the, then, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 as a man of faith? Well, that's the great moment of Samson's life. Everything betrays him to the point where he's blind and chained, working for the, the god of the Philistines, Dagon. Mm-hmm. His head has been shaved, and there's this great line in that story that says, but the hair began to grow back on his head. There is a kind of grace that God has us in an adventure already, a calling and a purpose and a life of meaning, that though we often don't see it, if we can cultivate enough discernment to recognize that it's there, is always there by God's leading and creation. And in the end, Samson does recognize it. He prays for vindication, and he has that last moment of strength in which he elevates Israel's God over the Philistine God. He fulfills that purpose finally. Uh, but so in other words, you want, to be, you want to be a man who waits until the last moment to show <laughs> some measure of uh, godly courage and and a character, or do you want to get it going now? That's a good right. question. Friends, the book, The Five Masculine Instincts, I think it's going to be very encouraging to you, a guide to becoming a better man. $14 on our website, saveus.org. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Always a delight to come before you, my friends, to talk about the things that matter most from God's viewpoint. And God is concerned about men. He wants us to stand up like men. 
In fact, the scripture uses in the King James Version says, quit you like men. In other words, be a man from God's viewpoint. Stop being so wimpy. Stop being so pusillanimous, so milky toast. Uh, No, let your word be your bond. Speak the truth and uh, be a man of character. So why then, Chase, would you pick Moses? Moses is uh, deemed to be, in America, probably one of the principal, other than George Washington, uh, one of the principal characters weaving its way his way biblically throughout the entire history of this country. Why did you pick Moses? As you say, Moses is certainly remembered as one of the great leaders, and with that comes this idea of ambition. Well, in uh, fact, no, struck- not only is he seen as one of the great leaders, the Jewish people believe that the Messiah will be a resurrect, like a resurrected Moses. They don't believe in a divine Messiah. They're looking for somebody just like Moses. So what's Moses so, like? Well, uh, Moses is characterized by a kind of ambition across his life that's important to recognize. When he strikes down the Egyptian, Acts tells us he believed that the Hebrew people would rally behind him, that he would lead them. They, they don't. They end up mocking him, the two Hebrews that he saved, who made you prince over us. Mm-hmm. So then 40-some years later at the burning bush, when God calls Moses back to that same work, what does Moses do? You know, is this finally, I've been waiting 40 years? No, he says, you know, I'm slow of speech, and maybe you could send someone else. How will they know that you sent me? He seems unbelievably reluctant. Well, where All right. is, the is that called humility, or is that uh, weakness? Well, Moses is controlled by this sense of ambition in ways that I think most of us are familiar with. There's nothing like ambition that one moment makes you feel like you are capable of anything, and the very next moment makes you feel by some failure like you're incapable of anything. It sounds like it sounds like you're describing the majority of pastors in America. Yeah, anybody who's tried to do something <laughs> great, I think we know that feeling. And some would say that the person discouraged has lost their ambition or doesn't have that ambition. But I think what Moses is an example of is when ambition becomes all we see and overindulged, we measure everything in life against its fulfillment. We measure, we judge others on if it's fulfilled. We judge God on if he's helping us or not. We judge ourselves on our own capability. And Moses wrestles with this from beginning to end when he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. He doesn't just disobey. He also chastises the people, you rebels, and he says to them, must we provide water from this rock for you? Mm. In other words, he starts to judge God's people. He starts to over-identify his emotions and who he is with God. He disobeys. He's so fixed on this ambition that it becomes the only thing that he can see and actually leads him to places of, of real disobedience. And in the end, cost him the promised land. God, for that action, will have him go right to the edge, Mount Bimbo, look out at the promised land, but ultimately not enter it. So in other words... A person's ambition can actually lead them to dis what God says at a moment, and the consequences could be grave. Yeah, your ambition can actually blind you to what God is doing, and you can outpace God and become so fixated on your vision, your ambition, that you actually begin to manipulate people, manipulate God, lose sense of yourself and your relationship to him as everything in life becomes measured against your ambition being fulfilled. How many businessmen and how many pastors and politicians have we seen who have entered a uh, place behind bars because of their unrestrained ambition? Yeah. 
And okay. this is the question. Who, who, who would imagine Moses disobeying, yet that's the thing ambition can lead us to, behavior and actions we didn't imagine possible. So when the Jewish people are looking for one like Moses who disobeyed, uh, that's a pretty questionable thing that they would put their final trust in such a person who uh, would not obey God without reservation. All right, going on. A fellow by the name of David, uh, said to be a man after God's own heart, uh, king of Israel, the uh, forerunner, so to speak, of Messiah as king on the throne of Israel. So why did you pick him, though? David wrestles his entire life with this tension between the public image, the expectation of being king, and the true integrity of his life. I like to define integrity as a build, a, an awareness of everything in your life. It doesn't just mean you always do what's right. It means you're aware and take responsibility for even what you don't get right. You're mm. a person of integrity because you see and own it all. Um, at times, David does this well. He takes off Saul's armor and faces Goliath as who he is, in honesty, a shepherd, God, as his vindicator. But at other times, he goes terribly wrong. He doesn't just commit sin with Bathsheba. He also covers it up. He maintains his public image. He, he preserves uh, his reputation at the expense of Uriah's life. And so David struggles in this tension of leaning into his public image, holding on, protecting it at the expense of the truth of who he really is. This, so it's like, it's, like a man, it's like a man, a Christian man or a pastor that urges his daughter to have an abortion because he's afraid his reputation is going to be at stake. Uh, if they find out that she's had sex outside of marriage. Yeah, it leads you to places you couldn't imagine. Or the, the Christian man who, you know, shakes hands and smiles on Sunday morning, and there's whole parts of his life that are erased searches and hidden and swept under the rug. Mm. And yet, as long as he can convince everyone that he's successful, it's enough to preserve his public reputation, even though it's not the full truth. All right. So what's the difference, then, between King Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, who stood head and shoulders above the people, and uh, little David, who was the seventh of uh, his father's son, uh, seemed to be the least worthy. Uh, what's the difference there? Yeah, you, you, you capture how important this theme is in that question, because Saul is, of course, his name, the one asked for. They take one look at him and say, he's tall and handsome. That's exactly what we're looking for in a king. Mm -hmm. And he really unravels under the expectation of that public image that he never can really live up to. The thing that always struck me about David is we have all of his life to read about. Um, we live in an age where people, politicians, will spend millions of dollars to cover up their sins and buy people <laughs> off, and they'll hire, they'll hire. You're not, you're not talking about Hunter Biden in the Ukraine, are you? I'm not pointing you? any fingers, no, <laughs> no fingers. But what's remarkable about David is we have all of it. He doesn't burn the books. He doesn't behead the guy who recorded the negative stuff. David yeah. gives us the Psalms, his own confessions in his own words. In the end, he's a man of integrity, not because he always gets it right. Certainly doesn't. He's a man of integrity because he's willing to take responsibility for all of his life, the good and the bad. And yeah. he leaves us with this this fully inventoried life. Even if it takes a prophet to confront him. Yep. And unfortunately, uh, King Saul and David had prophets that confronted them. King Saul responded by saying, uh, yeah, but it's the people. David responded saying, I am the man. I agree with you. I am the man. 
Lord, please forgive me. Uh, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Yep, that is integrity, that ability to say. Exactly. Okay, there's a fellow by the name of Abraham. Uh, Why did you pick him? Abraham is the exemplar of faith, right? He sets out on right. uh, cross horizons, not knowing where God's leading him. But when Moses' life does go wrong, and there are several points where things get complicated, it tends to be him backing away from the complexity and disengaging, apathy. Of course, the great example of that— You didn't mean Sarah Moses, you up, meant Abraham. Oh, excuse me, Abraham. Yes, Abraham. Uh, the great example of that is when Abraham and Sarah, Sarah comes up with a plan to have an heir through Hagar, uh, and Abraham seems to just sort of pass- passively go along with it. When it results in tension in his home, he says to Sarah, you deal with it. Well, so okay, 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 hold on, Hagar. hold on, hold on. Isn't that exactly what Adam did in the garden? Eve, there is came, a lie to him, of this. Eve came to him and said, hey, this stuff looks pretty good. And Adam thought, hmm, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I better conform. Well, and then his inability to deal with the consequences in Abraham's case. Um, so, yeah, this apathy is, is there in his story. But to me, one of the real moments of danger is the end of chapter 21. It's a kind of false ending. You feel like Abraham's story is wrapping up. He has peace treaty signed. He plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. Isaac, mm-hmm. his heir, is finally born. Issues with Lot and, and Ishmael have kind of resolved themselves, although they're gone. You, you see this as a winding down of his story. But yet you turn the page to chapter 22 and you read, but God tested Abraham. And mm-hmm. it's here that he calls Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Um, I have this idea that maybe the most dangerous moment of Abraham's life was this moment where he had everything. All the promises were fil- fulfilled. He yep. certainly still believed in God. But what real practical use was there for faith in his life, for God in his life? Yep. He had accumulated everything he needed. And so God shakes him out of that apathy by forcing him back into a position of faith a position of sacrifice, a willingness to sacrifice. You know, uh, boy, I'll, you're you're bringing up some some feelings going back, uh, well, twenty to 1992, when the Lord spoke to my heart at the height of my legal career as a trial lawyer in California, saying, "Son, you've been pleading the cause of men long enough. I want you to plead my cause in the land now, as a voice to the church, clearing vision for the nation." And I said, "Yes, sir." Well. You know, I worked hard to get that legal degree, <laughs> mm-hmm. and things were going well. God was prospering. How could he possibly want me to leave all of that? And then, no no sooner had we formed Save America Ministries, than he said, now I want you to up and sell everything you have, 30 years of business ministry and political investment in California, and go to the birthplace of the nation, and then I'll tell you what to do. That's when we launched this radio program. Everything was at risk. Everything was at risk. And I think uh, oftentimes for men, if we're not willing to hear the voice of the Lord and realize he's testing us, are you willing to be my man? It's a big deal. Yeah, and we have this idea that we would prefer to protect it keep what we have, retreat mm-hmm. back into the, the recliner and our comfort and our hobbies. But when Moses does, or excuse me, I keep saying Moses, when Abraham does that, it's, it's the very thing that creates all the pain and difficulty in his home. Yeah. That really the only way to really live well is to lean into those sacrifices, the complexity of it, the difficulty of it, and to sense how God is leading you into that, that sacrifice to keep faith alive and engaged. Abraham 
does that so well. But he also gives us this image, this danger, this temptation of apathy mm. and disengagement. You know, I, I'm so glad that you brought this up. Uh, I, I really think, Chase, that uh, this is the area in which women, mothers, wives are desperately looking for their husband to be that kind of man who will be the man of spiritual vision, who will be the man who will humble himself before the word of the Lord, the ways of the Lord, the will of the Lord, and will lead his family and his wife accordingly. But women are saying, that's not my man. So what do you say to those men? We need you right now. Um, I know culture will say that we don't, but it's a lie. The church needs you. Your family needs you. Your children and grandchildren need you. Uh, and we risk too much. There's too much at stake for you to not play the part that God is calling you into. And, and be sure, it will be a sacrifice. Mm. It will sacrifice time. It will sacrifice resources. But mostly it will sacrifice the simplicity of your life, the comfort of your life. Sure, it would be easier to retreat to your recliner, your hobbies, the life you can control. But there is so much at stake right now, and God has so many better things in store if we're willing, as Paul says, this life a living sacrifice. Whatever he asks of me, I'm willing to lay it down and pay mm. the price, to bear greater responsibility, to be this forefather of faith that Abraham is so well. It always comes with a sacrifice. We yeah. always move forward by sacrifice. And every one of us is imperfect. We're not perfect, but we're called to be perfect. We're called to stand up like men, to quit ourselves like men, uh, to be the man that God called us to be for such a time as this. It's not only Esthers that are called, it's men. Men, even perhaps the more so, called to stand up and be soldiers of the cross, uh, to lift high the royal banner. It must not suffer loss, even, my friend, in your family. Thanks for joining us here on Viewpoint today. A big thanks to uh, Chase for his book, The Five Masculine Instincts, guide, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. $14 will put this book in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. Call us 1-800-SAVE-USA. And, friend, become a partner. Don't leave it to somebody else to do. It's time for us all to shoulder, shoulder the burden to get the message out until Jesus comes. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.